Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're discussing a proposition on the upcoming California ballot to label genetically engineered food. Genetically modified organisms, or GMOs, were introduced to the United States food system in the mid-1990s, and now an estimated 70% of packaged foods sold in this country contain some genetically altered ingredients. Proposition 37 would require food sold in California to carry a label if it contains just under 1% of GMO. Supporters say consumers have a right to know what's in their food and that GMOs have not been adequately tested. Opponents say tests have proven GMOs to be safe and labeling will drive up food prices. Over the next hour, we'll sink our teeth into GMOs with our audience at the Commonwealth Club and two guests on each side of the debate. Jesus Arredondo is principal and founder of Advantage Government Consulting in Sacramento. Kent Bradford is director of the Seed Biotechnology Center at UC Davis. Ken Cook is president of the Environmental Working Group, an advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C. And Jessica Lundberg is with Lundberg Family Farms, which grows rice up near Chico. Please welcome them to Climate One. All right. Uh, Ken Cook, why do you support Proposition 37? Well, for a number of reasons. Uh, let me start with the fact that I'm a California voter. I moved here just over a year ago, and I have a four-year-old boy. And my learning since I've been here has been that uh, the future of food is in California. And that future critically requires a right to know, transparency. Proposition 37 uh, is premised on that very principle, that with the uncertainty that I think is out there about genetically engineered food, uh, I do believe that we should have had from the very beginning government-mandated health and safety studies. We do not. Uh, I do believe that we should have been much more rigorous in looking at what the downsides might be for the environment, we now have abundant evidence that there are major downsides to the introduction of these, these crops and the technologies that go with them, which mostly are pesticides. Uh, these, the GMOs, the genetically, genetically engineered ingredients on the market, 
come to us mostly now from pesticide companies. And from my standpoint, uh, there are uncertainties about uh, the health and safety of genetically engineered ingredients. And while those uncertainties are out there, while the scientific debate uh, proceeds, and we hope it will be rigorous, the American Medical Association has called for long-term health and safety studies in a break from their past position recently. Until that's, we have more resolution there, it's the least we can do is to give people the right to know, let them look at a label, and that's what this proposition would do. If it's whole food that's genetically engineered, it will say genetically engineered. If it's a fruit or a vegetable, if it's a processed ingredient somewhere on the label, and these labels change all the time, it will have to indicate that there are genetically engineered ingredients in it. It's very straightforward, and in California, we value those rights. And uh, come to learn, you've been leading the nation for a long time in asserting those rights in the public interest. This is the right we need now for our food. Kent Bradford, why are you opposed to Proposition 37? The primary reason I'm opposed to it is that, uh, contrary to what we just heard, there really is no scientific evidence that they are harmful at all or that there's any danger to them whatsoever. Uh, in fact, just today, the uh, uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science, the biggest organization of scientists in the world, came out and reiterated that there's no scientific reason to especially label these crops or to be concerned about their safety simply because they're genetically engineered. Main problem with uh, one of the main problems with the labeling uh, initiative 37 is that it is labeling for an entire technology. It in fact says that you will not label for the actual ingredient in the food. So in fact we're we're using a very broad stroke. We're, we're <coughs> labeling all foods that might have used genetic engineering. Uh, the American Medical Association just in June this year very clearly said there is no scientific justification for labeling of bioengineered foods. So. I could go on about scientific organizations. Every reputable scientific organization has concluded that there really uh, is none. The products on the market that have been uh, produced using genetic engineering have all been through FDA review. It's true, as was stated, it's not mandated. It's not mandated for any whole food in the U.S. All of the reviews of whole foods by the FDA are voluntary. Every genetically engineered food in the market today has been through the FDA review. So, in fact, there is uh, no worries there. So, uh, overall, uh, as a scientist, uh, my view is that uh, we need these tools. Contrary to what you just heard, the uh, use of genetic engineering is reducing pesticide use, particularly insecticide use has gone down dramatically. It has shifted the use of other uh, crop agricultural chemicals, like herbicides, to much, much safer uh, chemicals than were used previously. So it has replaced... Uh, other chemicals that were uh, worse, and so the overall environmental impact quotient has gone down by about 18% uh, due to the use of these crops. So I really don't feel like we need to add a stigmatizing label to these foods uh, when, in fact, uh, they are doing beneficial, uh, they're beneficial for us in the environment. There's absolutely no evidence that there's uh, a health problem, and the label itself would be so vague uh, that, in fact, it would be really uh, virtually useless uh, as, a, as an actual, we can come back to this later, be actually useless to the consumer, other than just to label a, uh, virtually every processed food in the market. So those are some of the reasons that I don't think you should vote for it. Uh, Jessica Lumberg, uh, the, uh, Kent Bradford mentioned uh, reduced pesticide use, and in fact the National Academy of Sciences cited improved water quality and reduced 
use of pesticides as a reason, uh, as, as a benefit of genetically modified organisms. So I'd like to get you, as an organic farmer, uh, in, in on that, whether in fact there's less pesticides, it could, GMOs could improve water quality. Well, that's, uh, that's an interesting statement because the research that we've been seeing is that there's over 500 million pounds more pesticides that's being used since the introduction of these genetically engineered crops. And these pesticides have to go somewhere. They're going into the soil, the air, and the water. And uh, as Kent had mentioned and as uh, Ken had mentioned, uh, the ma- vast majority of the crops that are being engineered are for herbicide tolerance or they are actually being engineered to be pesticides themselves, to be toxic to insects. So uh, that's uh, it's quite an interesting point of view that we were promised a technology that would reduce the amount of chemicals being used and actually we have seen an increase in chemicals, just like we were promised a technology that would increase yields for farmers and uh, have health benefits for consumers, and we have not seen an increase in yields, and we have not seen any health benefits for consumers. Is that because there's a tolerance that's developed, so you have to use more? I mean, why is that? You're saying there's more pesticide used if there's a pesticide-resistant crop. They are seeing in the areas where they're using these herbicide-resistant crops that it's it's what you knew would happen, uh, that uh, the more you use a chemical, the more the weed species adapt. And so as the weed species adapt, you have to use more chemicals. And uh, this, in some areas, has meant more applications of the chemicals. It's also meant uh, more chemicals of different uh, spectrums, different types of chemicals to address the weeds that aren't addressed with the chemical that the plant is engineered to withstand. So it's been both. Okay. Jesus Arredondo, let's get you in here in terms of why you're opposed to 37. Thank you very much, and thank you for having us. Uh, It's a very important debate, uh, very important discussion. Uh, the principal concerns that I have, I, I spend most of my time on regulation. And uh, I think the, the approach to uh, better information and providing more information to a society, it's a noble, it's a noble goal. It's a noble uh, start. Unfortunately, the way that this proposition is, is drafted is very poor and will result in uh, enormous confusion, and it's going to increase costs for our foods. Uh, the unfortunate reality here is that you have a proposition that is so poorly worded that we, were, we are going to wind up in litigation on day one if this thing passes. I would say vote no. There is a better approach. Litigation uh, by, by which side? The, uh, the losing side, probably, whoever wins or loses, right? Fair enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, the reality, though, is that... Uh, uh, on the on the winning side, if, if let's say let's say that it, it succeeds, um, you're going to we're going to get litigation anyway from the very lawyers who drafted this proposition. Uh, they've done it in in other cases. Uh, they were very instrumental in drafting Proposition 65 in California. That's resulted in a direct benefit to those who drafted the proposition. Uh, in in no case have we seen that there's any benefits to the populace, to the people that we are supposed to be protecting. And so if it's true that, that, that the interest is noble, then let's make sure that we do it right. Let's not rush uh, in, in, this, in this instance. Uh, let's make sure that we, that we do it from the perspective of being a little bit more judicial in the way that we're approaching the drafting of the proposition so that we don't wind up costing consumers unnecessarily. So you're saying that organic food companies are pushing this because they're going to make more money. Is that what yeah, you're saying? I think they will. Jessica Lumberg? Could I address that? Yes, I would like to address that. For one, you said that lawyers have drafted this, but actually lawyers haven't. This uh, proposition was drafted by a coalition across food, food health 
uh, or excuse me, food safety, public health, uh, farmers, and concerned citizens, because I know that because I was a part of that as a farmer. Uh, so this has been something that has been put together with a very keen interest for what will benefit the public, what will not be an addition to cost and provide as little uh, regulatory oversight as possible. Um, so I, I don't agree with you on that as far as it being drafted by the trial lawyers and especially on the point of uh, it being drafted by the same people that drafted Proposition 65. I understand the intention of Proposition 65 was also a positive for our, our uh, uh, the California uh, uh, consumers as far as protecting them, but learning from what happened with Proposition 65, Proposition 37 was put in place so that it would not reward lawyers for headhunting. They, uh, there is a, uh, a public provision so that uh, any consumer can uh, draw a suit against a company if they feel that a product is not labeled that should be labeled. But once a company shows an affidavit that it does not contain genetic engineering, the suit just drops. It's over. Uh, and if an attorney does uh, help a consumer in drawing up a lawsuit, uh, there are no additional fees that are paid to them for doing that. So that's that's something that uh, that I feel is misleading to to Will say. Will organic companies benefit from 37? And that's an interesting point too, because if you think about it, organic foods are the only only foods right now currently on the market that actually have a regulation that they cannot be produced using genetic engineered uh, seeds or products. So actually, isn't that counterintuitive, though, that right now when a consumer looks for a product that doesn't have genetic engineering, organic food is the only one that provides that, and yet what this ballot initiative uh, aims to do is to provide more direction to the consumers that actually would provide competition for organic foods if that's what the consumer is looking for, because it suddenly makes our market much wider, of uh, much wider for choice for people to be able to go out and see across a broad spectrum of products where they can find foods without genetic engineering if that's what they're choosing to purchase. So it could actually be uh, harmful and more competition for genetic food providers. Let's talk about uh, cost. Uh, one of the claims is that this will drive up food costs. Uh, there's a lot of numbers out there. Um, I saw one that was in the Ag Bio Forum from 2007 that said ranges between $1 to $10 per person in industrialized countries. Uh, you know, how is this going to affect cost, Proposition 37? We'd like to tackle that. Jesus? Well, I think Ken. Uh, number one, uh, the studies that we have looked at suggest that the impact to an average family is going to be between $350 and $400 a year. Now, and where's that number come from? What's that based on? Right, that's based on if if I am a producer and I don't want to have uh, a label on my product, I'm going to reconstitute, have to reconstitute my food and my product, and I'm going to aggregate costs to that product. I'm going to pass that on to the consumer. So if you're already shopping at Whole Foods, $400 might be nothing to you. <laughs> but if you're shopping at, uh, at Super Walmart, that's a big impact. $400 is a big impact to every family. So there is a real cost. Moreover, the Legislative Analyst Office in the state of California, which is an independent part of the government, uh, did a study, and they said uh, to regulate this, it's going to cost a tremendous amount of money. Now, there are some that have said, no, 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 it's not going to cost a lot of money. When was the last time that a government program was cheap? Ask yourself that question. Ken Cook? Well, I mean, look, I, I just think uh, you have to face the facts here. Uh, 
there, labeling is required in over 50 countries around the world, and you don't have to uh, take my word for it. Just Google uh, Kellogg's and England or Nestle and Germany. Uh, they're selling the same products over there that they sell here and that they would be selling in California, except they're required to label genetically engineered food. That's point one. And there's been no, no cost increases that they've reported whatsoever because the companies have responded. You, you brag about how dynamic the food industry is and how dynamic farmers are. Uh, they'll be dynamic enough to deal with this. And the study you're re- referencing, I believe, was paid for by the pesticide companies and the food companies that are opposing 37. Mm-hmm. They paid for it in Oregon, and then it was used back down here. Uh, my other point would be, and I'm so always uh, surprised to hear uh, this argument made, but particularly with you, Kent, that there would be no value to consumers from labeling when your uh, work, which I believe would be publicly funded, has shown how valuable labeling can be for Farmers, food companies, and pesticide companies where genetically engineered crops are involved. You call it uh, identity preservation. You wrote a beautiful paper on it, and the word labeling appears throughout there. And here's what it says. Let me tell you what that means. If a pesticide company genetically engineers a crop, a seed, they want to sell it for the maximum value, and sometimes that means they have to sell it to a farmer who will be able to sell that trade on the marketplace. Some of these traits have to do, for example, with making a special kind of corn that is ideally suited for making ethanol. Food companies don't like that corn. They don't want it. And the farmers, in order to take advantage of having spent more money on that seed, they have to demonstrate, document, that they have brought that kind of seed to the grain elevator. And the chemical companies that invented this seed want to be able to sell it to the farmers at a higher price, which means it goes right through the system. So what it seems to me, Kent, is something like this. Uh, We have a law in California that rice farmers lobbied through to make sure that genetically engineered crops of rice, if they're ever grown here, will be strictly labeled and tracked. And my feeling is, when I read your work, Kent, and I see the distinction between giving consumers the right to know where they simply feel that they have that right, and this is America, the consumer's always right, versus your view that it's okay and, in fact, necessary to label when it benefits the pesticide companies. We want labels then going through the food chain. We want labels when the, for the farmer when he takes it to the elevator or to the processing source. And we want to make sure that the food companies don't lose money when a mislabeled product gets into our food that they don't want. So is it not the case that you're in favor of labeling when it helps everybody in the food chain except consumers? No, it's not the case. Can I respond? Ken Brad, yes. I, yes. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you have uh, affirmed that I am an expert on identity preservation in agriculture <laughs> because I want to first get back to the, uh, the cost issue and tell you where the costs come from. Uh, the studies that have been supported by the Yes on 37 uh, program suggest that it's, it's actually trivial. It's just changing the label, and labels change all the time. What's, what's the big deal? Just add it to the label. The problem is, is as uh, Jessica said, is that if someone challenges that and it says, well, you, this ought to be labeled, okay, you're just supposed to produce an affidavit. The grocery store says, well, I have an affidavit, and this just says where that, where that came from. Well... What is that? That person has to know, the person who sold it to them has to know where that came from. And the person who sold it to them has to know where that came from. And it stretches all the way back to the farmer. So we're going to have an enormous bookkeeping system 
that will be imposed upon the entire manufacturing, food manufacturing industry, because it's mainly, as uh, there are so many exemptions in the, in the rule, that it's mainly going to be processed foods, mainly uh, foods that are going to be captured, that now this poor grocer at the end is going to be sued by these lawsuits and because they can't produce an affidavit. And even if they do, uh, you know that the lawyers will en- encroach on everyone. In other words, it will just pass on uh, back down the way. I think it's also very important to have a distinction between branding and labeling. Branding is what you're talking about. You're talking about identity-preserved products, and that's what we have. We have identity-preserved products that say GM-free, for example. We have identity-preserved products that uh, channel different products. Generally, people who want to have those pay a a premium for them. Usually, there's a premium for GMO-free. Not organic, but there's an even bigger premium for, for that. In other words, it costs money to do that channeling. It costs a lot of money to do that channeling, and that's why it's reserved for places where it's really needed. That is where the product is very special and it needs certain properties. Okay, that's worth the effort to do that. Now we're talking about commodity. We're talking about just corn oil, soybean oil, starch, things that go into thousands, tens of thousands actually, perhaps 40,000 products in a supermarket. And that means those manufacturers will have to follow the entire supply chain of every one of those ingredients. They go to make a cake mix and put it on the shelf. They're going to have to know the entire supply chain of every one of those ingredients all the way back to the farmer. Now, that has to raise costs. And these are, this is where the costs come. I mean, I've seen the, the, the Proposition 37 study that was supported by them that says, oh, it's just a matter of changing labels. Well, this is, you know, this just does not, it's too naive. It's clear that that's where the cost will come, is back to try to have an identity-preserved system. If you think, you go in the store, and you look for that special label, that organic label, that GM label, it's higher cost. Now you're saying, but, oh, not, but it won't cost you more to any, do this. It not anywhere else in the world. Why, is it, why can that. they do it in China? Why can they do it in France and <laughs> Italy and everywhere else? You know, else? I, I was in France. I was in France and I was in the Netherlands. I was in Europe for a month this summer. You did not see a single product on the market in a grocery store in Europe with that label. You yeah, because they, the company switched out. No, because in They Europe, provided the food and no extra cost. No, because they really, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but in Europe, they, uh, when they tried to initiate those labels, they put labels on the things in the food, uh, there were pickets and, uh, and boycotts out in the streets. You so mean, in consumers other words, made decisions. I hate that. Well, consumers made decisions, but they made a decision. They have no choice. The consumers in Europe have no choice because there are no GE foods in those supermarkets. Now, if that's your goal, okay. <laughs> I'm happy for that. Well, but but there is food. There is food in the supermarket. That was a market response, right? That's a market response. But I think we. I don't think we have a completely, uh, you know, a random uh, audience here, as you pointed out. That. It's He's okay. not talking about the applause. <laughs> He's talking about what happened. I mean, if people can afford to, not this market. People can afford to already buy higher-priced foods, and so it's not a problem. But you know, we've got. A, we had a severe drought in the Midwest this summer, and it caused grain prices to go up. It's made grain prices go up around the world because those markets are interlinked. Every time prices go up, it's not a problem for us, a few more cents. I mean, the amount of cost in a, in a box of cornflakes is trivial. It really doesn't affect good us point. much at all. Very good However, point. around the world, people who rely can barely afford food for themselves. Those increases in, in price raise the poverty level, the malnutrition level, the food insecurity level immediately. Well, Kent, so you're, we have technologies we, that are helping to stop, keep costs why, lower. Why wouldn't we stop exporting or using 40% of our corn for ethanol if we're so worried about those poor people? Really. If you're so, if you're so worried about them, join me in lobbying the ethanol lobby and the industry to say we should not be devoting 40% of our corn crop to put into our SUVs. Hey, I'm off. if you want to do that, 
Go lobby that. Why put a label on our food that's going to cost us all a lot of money to indirectly try to achieve that goal? If you really don't like that, go go challenge the energy conference. Go challenge the energy law. All right, guys. uh, Ken Cook is president of the Environmental Working Group, and his sparring partner uh, is Kent Bradford, (laughs) director of the Seed Biotechnology Center at UC Davis. Uh, Jessica Lumberg lets you get get you in here. You're a farmer yourself. Respond to that. Yeah, thank you very much. So uh, back to the original comments made by Jesus on Proposition 37. Uh, there was a major assumption that you made there that I think is something that's that's not uh, included in Proposition 37. And so your information is faulty. It's that uh, this is a labeling law. This is not a ban. This is not requiring food companies to change their ingredients or to reformulate their products. If they choose to do that, it's in response to consumers. And that's one thing that we feel as farmers... Uh, See, we have meat, Lundberg Family Farms. My family started a rice mill. We sell consumer products with our name on it. We encourage consumers to tell us what they want. Uh, so we've had this relationship for a while. We understand what, con- what our consumers want. And because of that, when, when we go out to make changes, we can make it in response to a marketplace. The owners of this technology have never had that conversation with a the consumer. They've never asked them, Uh, Do you want to buy this? Because they've never told the consumer what the benefit is supposed to be. So when you make the comment about this is going to cost each family in California three to four hundred dollars more, no, it's not. That's based on your presupposition that the companies are going to immediately have to reformulate. Well, what an interesting idea that you would immediately assume that people don't want that. (laughs) But because as a food company, we change labels all the time, and it's not something just to throw out there as 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 if it's flippant. It's not. Packaging costs are a budgeted expense. And if we change our package labels, we don't pass those on to the consumers. So when we talk about Proposition 37 as being a very straightforward, clear labeling initiative, it means put the label on. And to Kent's point of, again, reformulation, the complexity of the food system, farmers Farmers will deliver what the market demands. Farmers are extremely resilient. And to your point about the drought-resistant corn, why would you not label that and tell people what the benefit is to the marketplace? You're also assuming that putting a, a label that says genetically engineered means people will go away from that. Why not have that communication? People are so disconnected from their food, why not let them understand the challenges to farmers? Why not let them know how their food is being produced? So to me, it's an open conversation with consumers. It's creating transparency. It doesn't add cost to the system. It doesn't require reformulation. And the other thing that you mentioned about the supermarkets and the grocers and all of the lawsuits that would be brought... No, because if the, if the company that's making the food, and I understand how the food system works too, and I know it is complicated, but it's also set up for food safety. And we have a system of tracking and tracing in this country that has given us very safe food when we follow the laws that are set out. And if we have contamination, we are able to follow it actually to the farmers. And so it's already a complex system, and, and this initiative can work easily within our system. Jessica Lumberg is with Lumberg Family Farms. Let's have Jesus Arredondo. Mm-hmm. This initiative will make uh, the process of tracking that much more difficult. It is just laced with loopholes for how – I mean, I would have to hire a lawyer. And we farmed uh, in Northern California as well. Um, we grew alfalfa for Harris Ranch for, for some time. Um, here's the thing. In order to understand how I would have to label my food, I would have to hire a lawyer. Now, tell me that no. that's not going to add costs. That's disingenuous to say. 
Um, when the California Civil Justice Association says, hey, this is going to be very costly, and when the NAACP says, warns everyone and says, vote no, because this is going to be a problem, there's an issue here. We should be listening to that. Can this I, is going to hurt families. Can I respond Jessica to the Lundberg? farmer? Uh, just the, very simple. I can make it fairly quick. Uh, this proposition was written based on intent. If your family growing alfalfa the now intent, in California. Unfortunately, that's not what's going to happen. But you mentioned your it's family good, grows alfalfa. It, let's, let's say if it, you the, were the growing, intent was right. I feel mm-hmm. I'll, I'll grant you that. No, the, in practice and implementation, it's going to be terrible for the rest of us. When lawsuits happen, I will not benefit, you will not benefit, lawyers will benefit. This is not pro-people. This is pro-lawyers. I Just, think technically people are lawyers. Lawyers are people. I think technically at least. <laughs> Jessica Lumberg, you were cut off there. Can someone check that for me out there? <laughs> We're talking about Proposition 37 and Climate and, and, and One. And I want to, if I just hang on, Ken, but Jessica got, got oh, cut off there. It, yeah, the only thing I was going to say was very simple. The proposition's based on intent. The idea that uh, that both Kent and Jesus have made uh, is that if the food company intends to have a product that does not have genetic engineering, then they will make contracts with farmers to not grow crops that have been planted with seeds that have genetic engineering. That's what the intent means. If you don't intend that, and then you won't ask for that, and so then put the label on it. Very simple. Let's talk about transparency. It's come up here. We live in a world where consumers expect to know what's in their iPads, where they're made, uh, what the, the, the calories uh, on uh, menus now are disclosed. So we're living in a world of increased expectations of transparency, particularly among young people. There's no privacy anymore. So I'd like to have Kent or Hazu uh, talk, talk about the expectations of transparency. What's wrong with disclosure? Because it seems to be expected lots of places now. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give Jessica a point that uh, many people offer things to consumers. That is, farmers, the whole food system is a, is a price taker. That is, it offers things to consumers, and they, uh, they take it. Uh, if, in fact, uh, this label... Uh, were simply that, and everyone understood uh, what went into it. If they understood the way I do, how it was made, what the changes that were made were, what the benefits to the environment are, as I can document. In fact, well, we'll come back, but in fact, total pesticide use has gone down, and the environmental impact has gone down. We need these products, uh, this possibility, even more in the future. Those products are first wave, and we're going to be having much more severe things to deal with, drought, salinity, high temperatures, climate change, which is Climate-driven, yeah, right. But let me just say why, uh, to respond to her comment, why then don't companies be transparent and just put the label on it? I think all you have to do is look at the very first uh, television ad that was run by Proposition uh, 37, the Pro 37, which uh, I'm not going to repeat their claims because I don't want to give them credence, but they immediately tried to make consumers scared about genetically engineered food. That is, it's a scare tactic. If you look at what they're putting on those ads... It's not about your right to know. It's about be very scared about your food. Be very scared. That's why, this is why the manufacturers don't want to put these labels. It's not that they're not proud of their products, not that they wouldn't do it. It's because there are active groups constantly, every day, trying to make people believe that it's dangerous, that it's scary. And uh, I think if you were, here's the difference again between a label, a mandated label that uh, is misbranded if it's not there, and a brand. That is, if you want to label your, your food as uh, you know, non-GMO, you want to label it as uh, sweeter than somebody else's, whatever, that's a brand. What we have here is a mandated, government-mandated label 
that requires you to have speech. In fact, it will probably be challenged. You mentioned the lawsuits. It will be challenged on the fact that it's mandating speech from these uh, companies who lose their right of free speech. Basically, it's mandating them to put something on their label. You think it's funny, but the lawyers will tell you you're mandating them to put something on there that is not really what they agreed to. And again, the FDA has already decided there is no material change in those foods in the market so far. So we're going to have the FDA. I prefer myself, the FDA, base its labeling on science. I do not think the FDA, and well, it will go to the FDA. I do not think the California itself should be mandating labels that are not science-based, but are rather market-based. If we, if we allow the government to get into putting labels that are going to be shifting consumer purchases one way or another, I don't think that's the way we should go. I think food labels should remain about the science, about the content of the food. Let me just give an example. Many people have uh, allergies to peanuts, and it, we do have labels on there, and very appropriately so. Fought heavily by industry. What? Fought heavily by They're industry. there all, over, all yeah. over peanuts. Now, let me ask you this. What will happen uh, with Proposition 37 is that most, well, one likely scenario is that it will be very, very difficult for them to segregate, purchase, do all of these things. There is the option to put may contain genetically engineered, may contain genetically engineered food. Now, it seems to me the most logical thing for a company to do would be to put that on virtually everything that they sell because that will protect them from the lawsuits. It will be labeled. It may be misleading. How is that going to help you as a consumer? If everything in the market just says may contain. But in other just, words, you've gained nothing out of that label. And that's why I said earlier, you said, why will it not gain? Let me just explain, and that was it. That it says may contain as an out because it is very difficult to trace all these. If companies decide to do that, we gain nothing. We've gone through this entire thing, huge bureaucracy, all the way back to the farmer, and the consumer will gain no new information whatsoever. Ken Bradford is director of Seed Biotechnology Center at UC Davis. Our other guests today at the Commonwealth Club are Jesus Arredondo, principal and founder of Advantage Government Consulting, Ken Cook with Environmental Working Group, and Jessica Lundberg from Lundberg Family Farms. I'm Greg Dalton. We're discussing Proposition 37 on the upcoming ballot. I'd like to quote uh, a Scientific American editorial from the editors in 2009 who said, quote, it is impossible to verify that genetically modified crops perform as advertised. That is because agritech companies have given themselves veto power over the work of independent researchers. They uh, went on to say, ag companies should immediately remove the restriction on research from their end-user agreement. So I'd like to have Ken Bradford respond to that. They did. That's an old quote, 2007? 2009. Uh-huh. 2009, there was a discussion about that. There was debates about whether, in fact, independent scientists could plant those varieties and use them in tests. Uh, it created a big controversy, but the industry, this, the academic scientists, they all came together, and basically that's, I'm sorry to say it, but that's old news. That is, uh, there is no restriction on that. Uh, public scientists can do studies on these foods and so on. So, uh, you know, it's raised as an issue, but it's, it's been taken care of. Well, been taken care of because we forced them to take care of it. Look, you enjoyed that and, and, and fought it for uh, the uh, right up through the very uh, end, and there's still you still have to get agreement from the companies. You still have to sign a licensing agreement if you want to get it. Uh, in Europe, they're suing these companies to get access to the raw material. But, they're suing. But, the, but, but I just want to say, uh, on, on the whole question of transparency, when you look at California's food system, uh, some of the most exciting developments in food have come from this state. Some of the most important companies are based here. Now, we had a discussion earlier today with some of the leaders in the natural and organic food space. You probably have never heard of UNFI. Maybe you haven't. 
they're going to do $6 billion worth of sales here. They are the largest independent distributor, wholesale distributor of natural and organic food in the country. And the head, the founder of that, who started off loading vegetables onto trucks here in California and built it into a $6 billion industry that leads the world and is cleaning the clocks, by the way, of the conventional companies that are against 37, cleaning their clocks in the marketplace. He and the representative from Whole Foods, representative from a a six-store chain in Southern California, um, uh, Amy's, Annie's, these great brands based here in California, they made it very clear that they would never support Proposition 37 if the outrageous things that the other side is saying about its cost and the avalanche of lawsuits were true. The only lawsuits we've heard threatened tonight are the lawsuits, Jesus, you mentioned that were, are going to happen if this thing wins, and it's going to win. Well, <laughs> Jesus Arredondo? Uh, hear me now, believe me later, I guess is what I can <laughs> say. Those lawsuits are going to happen, and, and costs will go up, unfortunately. You know, one thing that's, that, that I find curious about the proposition, the way that it's drafted, is that it cl- excludes a number of food groups uh, from labeling. Why do we exclude alcohol if we're really interested in, in those labels? Why do we exclude milk? Why do we exclude cheeses? What, what happened? Well, uh, we need, there's, to get, we so need the, the meat and dairy exemption is a big part of this. And prepared Why? foods also, right? You can't, restaurant food will be treated differently. We need to, I want to take you all to dinner. We need to get you out more. Uh, because if you go to a restaurant now, you don't get nutrition labels. And what what was done with Proposition 37 was simply to follow the conventions we have for labeling in the rest of the food supply. Uh, when it comes to meat and dairy, if it's genetically engineered meat and genetically engineered dairy, as opposed to the feed that goes into it, it would require labeling. Uh, but we don't require, and the, the example that's given, we'd have to label dog food, but we wouldn't have to label meat. That's one of the big talking points in the ad. It's uh, blanking the airwaves from these pesticide companies and big food companies. Well, why is, that, why is that the case? It's because of the filler in the dog food, that's soybeans, soy oil, corn, and so forth, that would be genetically engineered. So, in principle, that, that would be one distinction. Whereas the meat, if it's not itself genetically engineered, now I know you all have that in the works, genetically engineered salmon, bringing a gene from another species in so it grows faster. I know this is in the pipeline. There's lots of foods in the pipeline uh, from these pesticide companies and other biotech firms, and they are planning to introduce more and more of them with the same, I think, inadequate safety regime we have now. And just to point this out, Look, the Food and Drug Administration, we understand that they are the body that uh, basically allows the companies to submit as they see fit whatever health and safety testing they decide to submit. It's not required. But we hear week after week, it seems, of instances where the Food and Drug Administration gets it really wrong in cases where they have huge amounts of animal testing data. And they've even tested things on people. And that's a category we call drugs where time after time we read about drugs that have gone through this rigorous health and safety testing and FDA still makes mistakes. So when that's the case, when that can happen, it seems the least we can do, the least we can do is give people a label. And if the consumer decides they want to eat food that's got genetically engineered ingredients in it, so be it. If they decide that they want to try and avoid that because they're concerned that maybe we missed something, like we did at every environmental disaster practically in history, like we did when Monsanto didn't tell us about PCBs polluting their neighbors, or when DuPont didn't tell their neighbors 
about Teflon ingredients in their tap water. These are the same companies in charge of letting us know if there's a problem in our food. If people knowing that want to have a label, they ought to have it. How much testing has actually been done so far? There's some debate. Some say not enough. I think, Kent, you said 400 tests have been done. Uh, let's talk about the testing basis. How much testing has been done on GMOs and human food? I think Kent just gave you a great example of the strategy that's being used. Do you feel scared about your food? I think that was his intent yep. to tell you that. I think it was very clear what the scared intent about, was. Scared about the companies who are in charge of it. Okay, a little there bit. you go. Yeah. Let, me, let me talk a little bit about yeah, those Monsanto, things. Monsanto, DuPont. Yeah, a little What's happened with the... Uh, these these crops are actually so over-regulated and so tested that those are the only companies that can actually go to market. I'm in a public institution. I work for the University of California. You people pay my salary. I have a colleague down the hallway that is developing genetically engineered plants that will be able to grow in drought, in salinity, with less water. If there's anything that we have in this state as a major problem, this is climate one is the topic of your whole thing. If we're really concerned about the environment, we will enable public scientists to do that work to bring those products that will solve those problems for us. Currently, the regulatory burden to test these foods is so high, the opposition, as you've heard, immediately if I, we try to produce this, Ken's going to say, you know, that thing might kill somebody someday. Even well, not, as, aren't you putting me, words in my mouth here? No, you said them yourself. You just, I mean, yeah, you just, some, I, did you I say that they would kill somebody someday? I don't believe that. You used I examples that. very related to that. But, well, okay, PCBs I won't put the words in your mouth, okay? Those, those are the examples that you're repeating. While the genetic engineering of the future is going to be targeted toward the problems we really have, climate change, high temperature, drought, nitrogen use, these are big, big, big issues. And what you're voting on here is an opportunity to stigmatize an entire technology. This is like vaccines. What if we said, okay, every vaccine, is a t there's problems in vaccines. Some people get a bad one. We have a horrible thing going on right now with this meningitis thing. It's terrible. It's horrible. But it's an aberration. Should we stop all vaccines because some people are unable to have an allergic reaction to it or something? Like 99.9% of the people? How many of you had a flu vaccine this year? That's high technology every year following those viruses as they go around the world, creating a brand new vaccine for you so that you can be protected. We need to do this in agriculture. I'm sorry to say that we're facing some very challenging problems from insects, diseases, and particularly climate change. And what you're doing by supporting this is you're putting one more impediment. You're driving the entire thing even more to the companies. And you're making it impossible for public sector scientists to do that humanitarian, that very important work. So I'll just say, because it will be a stigma, whether they like it or not, they're telling you that it will drive people away from it. That will just make it that much harder for us to use these technologies. How much of the research at those universities is funded by some of the companies that are involved here? Yeah, like yours. Very, very little. I wish these companies would fund our work at the level that oh, it's claimed. Little. It really, these big companies, have they're huge. they got all the resources they need, really. I mean, so they can't it. afford to do health and safety testing? They, can't they have to done that? health and safety testing. They're more, and you know, it's kind they of oppose, interesting. They oppose the federal It's kind of interesting because uh, in the public sector, as I said, we've, we would like to get some of these things out, but we just can't afford the cost because... The combination of the, of the green groups driving the, the regulatory hire and the companies themselves trying to block entry. In other words, the higher the bar, the more tests I have to do, the more data I have to submit to the FDA, that just excludes anybody else from playing this game. So, in fact, this in continual ratcheting up of this fear factor, the ratcheting up of this regulatory burden, the ratcheting up of the negative, the negative scare tactics simply drives that entire thing further and further toward those pesticide companies.
In fact, the best thing that we could do That's is terrible. make this completely non-controversial. You might, you might ask the question, why is the organic industry supporting this? Because they don't use GMO already. They don't use GMO already. So they're creating a new competitor. No. Well, what they are is that they use this labeling, this fact that they are GMO-free as a major advertising point. That's one of their major points. If GM's genetic engineering becomes non-controversial, if it becomes non-controversial, it's as, it's as, as non-controversial as the other plant breeding techniques we use, which are actually, in some cases, in fact, even scientists who say those have more potential for unexpected consequences than these, but it hasn't been branded that way. If it becomes non-controversial, there goes a major advertising point for organic. So there's a major incentive to keep it controversial. Kent Bradford is director of the Seed Biotechnology Center at UC Davis. We have other guests here discussing Proposition 37, Jesus Arredondo from Advantage Government Consulting, Ken Cook from the Environmental Working Group, and Jessica Lundberg from Lundberg Family Farms. I'm Greg Dalton. If you're just joining us, a podcast of this and other Climate One programs are available for free in the iTunes store. We're going to pause there uh, and have a couple of questions. First of all, if anyone knows the baseball score, please tell us. Um, What is it? Still, we're going to put the microphone up here and invite your participation. Again, if you're on this side of the audience, please come over uh, to our producer, Sarah, over there where the line will begin. Uh, We welcome you to uh, join the conversation with uh, a one, one part comment or question. And if you need help keeping it brief, I'm here for you. And uh, while, while we're doing that, I also want to uh, take, take a moment to, uh, to thank our fantastic crew tonight, Ed and Eva and Adam and Joe and Sarah and Laura and Ricardo back there. hope I caught everybody. So um, let's go to our audience questions, sir. Yes, sir. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Stephen Crafting. Um, first, let me say I love Lundberg Rice. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, one thing that's sort of been danced around here tonight and I haven't heard a whole lot about is the environmental impacts um, of genetically processed foods. And I have read recently about um, one of the most genetically amazing creatures on Earth, the monarch butterfly, that manages to migrate from Mexico and in seven generations or so, when it's in Canada in the fall, a monarch butterfly is born that knows how to fly all the way back to the valley in Mexico that it came, that its great-great-great-great-great-grandparent came from. They are in, their population's crashing right now because of genetically engineered crops. They're allowing higher herbicide use. They're wiping out the milkweed in the fence rows, not competing with the crops, in the fence rows. There's on about Monsanto wants to introduce an even more herbicide resistant crop in these areas. So let's, let's get it on. Yeah, environmental. So I'd like to hear you talk about some of that justification for the environmental impact here. Tim Bradford, environmental impact? Well, the, the monarch butterfly uh, story uh, traces back to the late 1990s, or about 2000, and uh, was proposed that actually there could be an impact on the monarch butterflies. The uh, large number of studies were funded. Uh, six papers were published in the Proceedings of the National Academy that unfortunately were published the same week as the uh, 9-11 uh, problem in New York. So, unfortunately, those never got to press. In other words, there were other things involved in the press, but very thorough studies. The monarch butterfly population fluctuates up and down, mainly depending on whether it freezes in Mexico or not. So I'm sorry to say, but that entire uh, connection between monarch butterfly populations and genetically engineered crops 
uh, has been completely and scientifically debunked. What, one related issue uh, is uh, genetically engineered salmon. Senator Lisa Murkowski, a Republican senator from Alaska, had a bill in the Senate earlier to require comprehensive environmental study before government approval uh, to get into this food supply. This would be apparently the first GE uh, animal for human consumption. That lost in the Senate. Is that something that I'd like to ask Kent or Jesus you would support? I don't see any problem with that uh, with that fish myself. I have to say, it's a what they've Should done is they've created a fish that will grow uh, three times uh, bigger on the same amount of feed uh, in a shorter time. And now they've moved it entirely to inland production. That is, it's not even being asked whether you're growing anywhere near the ocean. It's going to be completely inland production, so no possibility of escape. Uh, it's the same fish. Uh, it just grows faster. I mean, I'll, I'll be frankly honest. Uh, we need to be doing that with crops. We need to be doing that with a lot because we have to increase productivity per unit area of land or else we're going to take over more land and we don't have it. Uh, I mean, there are severe consequences to not having high productivity, high efficiency agriculture. And we got to feed 9 billion people by mid-century. Ken Cook? Well, and there's lots, there's lots of ways we can feed those people, and we know from... Uh, you know, the Amartya Sen's Nobel Prize, uh, that um, people don't starve primarily because there's a lack of food. It's because they don't have access to it. They can't buy it. But just to go back, this has been a great exchange, a great question. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, biotechnology industry uh, crushed uh, Republican Senator Murkowski's amendment that just asked for an environmental, a more thorough environmental study. Um, if, if, it, if it's the case, as you just described, Kent, that this is no big deal, that ought, to be a, that ought to be a pretty easy study to do. But, see, she represents salmon fishermen in Alaska, and she's concerned about this. And she went to her colleagues on the Senate floor, and, um, and she asked, can, can we just proceed with a study that's more rigorous than we were going to do otherwise as we're going through the approval process of this. And time and again, the industry you're representing up here today, you're standing up for, which is not the public uh, institutions, it's the pesticide companies and the other biotech firms that make this stuff, they have fought time and time again to delimit as much as they can any kind of health and safety studies and overviews. And only when they lose those fights do they, as they did in the case of making some of the material more available to researchers, somewhat more available, only then do they, uh, do they uh, come forward and accept uh, a different regime. They've uh, spent a lot of money. They're spending 40, over $40 million to kill Prop 37 in our state, over $40 million bucks, uh, with advertisements that are making, talk about sloppily written and uh, deceptive uh, labels. These advertisements uh, are the epitome of it. And this is a great example. Just do that study, and they, they just couldn't stand for it. Just do labeling, they can't stand for it. Require health and safety testing at the federal level like we do for pesticides and other things? No. And so that's where I come in. Look, I, I am not saying, uh, you know, I am not going to feed my kid genetically engineered food because there are times when I think I'll, I'll feel okay doing it. But that's not the point. The point is I want a choice, Kent. I want a choice, Jesus. I want to be able to know, just in case. Yeah, but I can't buy. I can't buy organic all the time. He goes out, to visits neighbors, goes to school. We don't always have organic, and I'd like to be able to know uh, if I'm feeding this uh, product to my kids and serving it at dinners that I have in my home uh, from time to time. I'd like to be able to make decisions based on what I can read on a label. It's just really that simple. 
And the reason California is leading in natural and organic foods, $30 billion industry nationwide, big companies here creating thousands of jobs. We had billions of dollars worth of companies on a call today talking about why they support Prop 37. Retailers, wholesalers, farmers, the whole kit and caboodle. The reason they do that is because they know that's the future, that they can make the products that consumers want. They can do it in a way that they do it in other countries, and they can make good money at it. They wouldn't be putting their neck in a noose if they thought Prop 37 was going to put their companies out of business. Whole Foods, are you kidding? They're leading the industry. UNFI, a $6 billion company, you think they'd put that on the line after starting off loading fruits and vegetables on a truck? You think they would seriously be in support of Proposition 37 if they thought it was going to put their company out of business through lawsuits and costs? All right, let's get, uh, let's get our next audience question. Hi, yes, sir, welcome. James George with Envirobeat. Uh, perhaps a similar question. It's about maybe the hubris of science. Uh, nuclear power was claimed it would be safe and too cheap to meter. It wasn't. Okay. So what about this, not just as a consumer issue for the health of the consumer, that we can track in, in a relatively short time frame, but what in 10,000 years, 100,000 years, we're interesting things. Is there enough exploration to know? And can we trust a corporation that's looking at a quarterly profit sheet to introduce something that could be around, well, beyond our time scale? We'd like to feel that. First of all, <laughs> yeah, sure, I'd love to. Uh, you know, our, our economy is, is in a bind right now. We can't pay for education, can't pay for health care. We're trying to figure all of this out right now. And this proposition is drafted so poorly that it's going to increase costs. And it's going to increase costs on the people who can least afford it. Let's, I, I don't disagree with you. Let's, everyone has a right to know. We should, we should know. But we shouldn't take a proposition that's going to force upon the, the whole population a mandate to label a, in a in a scarlet letter type of approach that's going to raise costs for people who can't afford it. This is the wrong way to do it. Kim Bradford, quick, quickly, quick, and then we'll get to the next question. i just say one thing that uh, about it going out and, you know, will it be 100,000 years from now? Will it be a problem? Let me tell you, there are, while we're here tonight, a 1,000 kids will die from malnourishment, vitamin A. Half a million, half of <coughs> 500 million kids go blind every year from vitamin A deficiency. Genetic engineering was used to create golden rice that has vitamin A in it. It's being stymied by the same types of arguments that we're hearing up here tonight, that it might, something somewhere might go wrong. So I'll, I'll leave it to you people. What's the moral choice here? Should we give that rice, a cup of this rice every day to kids would, would solve malnutrition, not make them go blind, solve their malnutrition issue? Should we continue to stigmatize this technology so that people can have the choice between fantastic organic food, fantastic GE-free food, or fantastic conventional food. You make the choice. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Connie George, and I just returned from Guatemala. Uh, I was on the back roads in very poor villages um, with very poor families, and we were helping them with their food. Uh, some of them have gardens no bigger than the size of this um, uh, where you guys are sitting, and they did not want chemicals in their food. They didn't want genetically auto, um, modified seeds. Mm-hmm. They asked to have organic. They had organic composting. They were very proud of this. Is you know like individual families, but that's all they wanted. And what I feel like the American consumer is given 
is whatever is most efficient. And now we're saying after the 50s when all the chemicals came through that, no, we don't want that. So why is it being forced through big companies that this is the way it has to be when all we want is the choice? Who'd like to feel that? Well, I, I, I mean, I would look. I think I think you make a good point. Uh, first of all, you know, there there are other ways to get vitamin A to these kids, and I'm not even saying that in the case of uh, of this rice that that it should not be uh, should not be put on the market. But I think people ought to know when it is and make a decision about it. And look, um, you know, the, this, the the questioner asked about these these big companies. Uh, DuPont and Monsanto, they've made a lot of chemicals that are no longer on the market. And they're no longer on the market because when we finally got around to understanding their health and safety impacts, uh, the government had to take action and take them off the market. Uh, Those are regulatory systems in place that have that power. Right now, uh, we're not collecting the kind of information that would allow a regulatory agency to really, I think, do an impartial review of, of, of health and safety. I think that's what we're asking for in the long term, but that's not what's on the ballot here in California. What's on the ballot here is is really simple. If it's genetically engineered, it says genetically engineered. It doesn't say danger, genetically engineered. It doesn't say warning, genetically engineered. Um, it just says genetically engineered. And my, my, my view is that uh, there's an education job that needs to be done, including by the companies, and you're not doing a very good job of it. If you say that we're being so successful in demonizing food, uh, I, I haven't noticed that when I look at the wastelines around the country, and I also haven't noticed it uh, when I look at the, uh, the part of the food sector that's growing so dramatically, and that's where consumers feel like they're voting with their dollars to get what they think is, is a, a great, healthy product. That's why organic is, is leading the marketplace, and natural foods are leading the marketplace. So, you know, I really do think it's unfortunate. I, I would like to see more public research on genetic engineering of crops. I'd like to see more public research uh, into the, the potential impacts of it. Uh, I, I'm very worried that so much power, as you say, and so much money is concentrated in these big companies to the point that they can not only buy the technology and dictate how it's going to be used, uh, they're coming very close, if we don't fight back here in California, they're coming very close to buying our right to know. Very close. Ken Cook is president of the Environmental Working Group. Jessica Lundberg. Uh, but back to the question that Connie asked. Uh, her question was, why is it being forced on these countries? And I think it's one reason why we have the system we have. It's not an agricultural model. It's a business model. And it's tying uh, the ownership of chemicals and the ownership of seed to, an agri- to a business system. And that is trying to be spread as a business model throughout the world. Because even uh, one of the companies that's supporting the No on 37, Nestle, who's based out of Europe, uh, they've put money towards the no on 37, and even their sustainability officer out of Europe has said that genetically engineered foods are not the future of how to feed the world because we need a more holistic agricultural system. Let's get our next audience question. Welcome. I'm Teddy Crawford. And just to quickly segue after your recent comment, there's a wonderful book written by two Wall Street Journal uh, reporters. A closer to yeah. Two reporters for the Wall Street Journal. It's called Enough, and it's all about why the Local farmers in Ethiopia are having a hard time. There is no market. We have gone in, and they recommend setting up a, a like a Chicago border trade in Ethiopia. It's just, you know, if you want to dig a little deeper, there's a lot to learn. I would like to address uh, the fear factor. There's, where's the scarlet letter? 
Where was the advertising? We can't afford to do the advertising. I think our first TV ad's coming out next week. No, today. On, yes, on 37. Oh, today? Okay. <laughs> but is, am I correct? Today or tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We so, haven't been running We, we have a couple minutes left, so let's okay. get to the question. And we can let's go to Michael time. Taylor. Michael Taylor was the lawyer, consulting lawyer for Monsanto about 10, 15 years ago, slowly setting up this slow process of, first of all, how do you get a patent on something that is a live thing? At the same time, claiming substantially the same as organic food. I hear a little bit of contrast in that statement. But that's the legal basis for which Monsanto has been able to go in. Now, as again, the second time he's been back with the FDA, he's second in charge of safety. You only need to test a food three months. Three months. How long do you think you can get results that might affect reproduction or other diseases? It's not fear. It's common sense. Okay. Let's, uh, okay. So the question there, I think, is about uh, patenting something that's uh, not different, that's the same, as well as the, the fear factor. Kent Bradford? <clears throat> well, we have, we have at least three different systems for intellectual property on, uh, on plants. Uh, companies who put a lot of effort into breeding, whether it's uh, through genetic engineering or not, have mechanisms that have been in place uh, since 1930. 1930 on vegetative propagated things. If you buy a rose, it's a patented rose. If you buy, uh, you know, since 1970, we've had ways to have intellectual property protection on uh, on other crops. To address specifically how you could get a patent and yet still be substantially equivalent is because, the, you know, I don't want to get technical, but basically the patent is on what the change they made. And the change they made is so tiny, it's so minuscule when you come to a nutritional measurement that it's insignificant. And that's what they made their basis on. And I think they're right. That is, if we can do something that will improve the environmental profile and reduce the environmental footprint of agriculture, and it makes a trivial, absolutely trivial change in the nutritional content, I think that's great. And it's, why should it be on the label, really, if, if it's not about the food? Again, the whole thrust of Proposition 37 is to label an entire technology. Let's label all vaccines because there's a few people who, you know, have a, we still have a very strong opposition group. Should we get a, should we get a, uh, you know, Proposition 39 and we start, uh, you know, someone say, I think you need to get rid of all vaccines because there's, I don't like them. But, I mean, this I, is where we're at. Let me just make one other comment. I go to my doctor for my four-year-old, <laughs> Kent, they tell me what vaccine it is. No. They tell me. I get to know what the vaccine is. I can make some decisions on my own. And we're not talking here about banning GMOs. We are talking about labeling them. And when I go to my pediatrician for my four-year-old, I ask questions about the vaccine. And I do my research and try and decide if I want to sequence it a little slower than they may recommend. And usually they say that's okay. It gives me a lot more freedom if I have that basic knowledge. And your side of this argument doesn't want to give us this basic knowledge. Let's go to the next audience question. We're getting close to the end here, talking about California Proposition 37 at the Commonwealth Club. Yes, ma'am. Welcome. Ronnie Sippy. I have two questions. One is for Ms. Lundberg, which is I have been confused whether when something is labeled organic, I thought it referred to how the growing process occurred, lack of pesticides and this kind of thing, and that I thought it was possible that things like organic corn chips, for instance, Mm -hmm. might actually be GMO'd corn, Mm -hmm. because I know it is almost impossible to get non-GMO'd corn in this country. So that was one question. 
And my second question was, how is it that Europe is so able to, uh, in most cases, provide a reasonable food supply for themselves that is not gmo Thank you. Brief answers. We're getting close to the end. Who'd like to? Jessica? Okay. Uh, the question on um, GMOs and organics. Organic production is regulated under the Federal National Organic Plan and it, or program, and an organic systems plan has to be put into place, and it does not allow for the use of genetically modified uh, seeds or any other uh, inputs. Uh, but, as you mentioned, uh, we grow organic crops in areas that can have conventional crops around them. There are borders and buffers that are required for safety, but there is no testing that's required of those organic crops. It is organically certifying the system that it's been growing in that there aren't pesticides being added or any uh, unapproved materials being added to the process, which is why some of the some of the organic companies have started up another project called the non-GMO project, which is actually a verification process that does test the products after they come out of the agricultural system. So you're right, there are contamination issues, which is why we as a company and as a family in the 80s when we saw the technology starting had serious concerns about it because we knew it would challenge purity of our agricultural systems. Uh, and then uh, the second question... How do Europeans feed themselves? How do Europeans feed themselves? Quite well. Uh, quite well. They actually eat very well. Uh, and they listen to their consumers. And like I said earlier on, farmers will meet market demand. And if you know that what your consumers want, then you plan your seed stocks and you plan your animals and you plan what you're going to harvest and supply to the marketplace. Could I respond quickly to that? Kim Bradford. Europeans feed themselves by using more chemicals per area than we do in the U.S. They are very chemical-intensive agriculture. They do have some organic, but they import it from uh, northern Africa. They, they ship in organic food by airplanes. I don't know if that's uh, entirely green. But they use more chemicals uh, than we do for their agriculture. They also import a whole lot of genetically engineered corn and soybeans to feed their animals. Let's have our can audience I, question. I, Let's, just, hang on one second. Let's get our audience question. We're getting out. We're squeezing this in at the end. Uh, we're talking about Proposition 37 at Climate One. Welcome. Yes. Hi, I'm Ashley. Um, so since one of the main complaints against Prop 37 has been that it would create a stigma that is perhaps undeserved, um, given that uh, research has not concluded that there are health effects that are negative, um, what if there was a label that, um, and I'm thinking of milk labels that say RBST is not known to cause health effects or whatever, um, what if there was a label that said this product contains genetically modified organisms, asterisk, this is not known to cause health effects. Would that um, get rid of some of the negative effects that you think will be caused by this labeling? No, because you haven't gotten rid of the regulatory mess that you're creating in the process. And that regulatory mess is what's going to cause the problems, I think. And this is why uh, nearly all of the uh, uh, editorial boards in the state of California have said vote no on Prop 37. It's not drafted right. This is going to create a big mess. Mm-hmm. They said the same thing about the um, humane treatment of animal proposition a few years ago, remember? They said that egg costs were going to go through the roof, that we weren't going to have egg production in California any longer, only out-of-state eggs were going to come in. What happened? Uh, well, we, we, we regulated it to death, so we can't get anything from out-of-state. Well, no, we, we're, we are importing eggs from out-of-state. We're eating eggs here. They're pretty good, near as I can tell. Lots of them, right? Right, round. I can't where afford I live. the ones that you buy, though. No, you can't. I don't buy. I don't buy all organic uh, eggs. I, I've been known to buy conventional eggs. But the the point is this: California led the world, led the country first, 
And this change that voters put on the ballot against the same opposition, the same worries, the same exaggerated claims that we were going to be out of eggs, food prices were going to go up, the same the same scare tactics about uh, costs, voters looked aside and said, we ought to treat animals right, just like they're looking now and, and trying to decide, we, should we label food uh, so that we can tell if it's genetically engineered? And what happened was the whole country is starting to make changes. The Humane Society and the egg main egg producing association in this country have developed model legislation after the experience in California that they want to federalize. That's what happens when California's voters uh, act like they usually do in the public interest. And we're making the case up here tonight, Jessica and I, that this is a good example of it. Proposition 37 deserves support. Lead the world. Uh, Public access to beaches, public access to land, public right to clean air and clean water. This is what you've done here in California. You've led the world. And what we're needing to do now for our food is lead the world once again from California, because everyone is watching this vote. Vote yes, and make sure that the United States gets on track with 50 other countries around the world, including China, including India, most of Europe, and labels genetically engineered food. And then let's keep developing this technology do the health and safety studies. Let's move forward. If it's as safe as everyone says and we can resolve these doubts, hallelujah. But in the meanwhile, the least we can do is tell our consumers when it's genetically engineered and when it's not. Kent, or uh, Zeus would like to. Uh, Kent Rapper, let's have your uh, closing statement for No. 137. I, I would uh, totally agree California should lead the country. And uh, I'm a professor at the University of California, which is the best public institution in the world. And we should be leading in the ways that California should lead. We've been leading in terms of environmental issues. We've been raising uh, mileage. We've been trying to cut CO2 in the air. I mean, we, we're, we're leading this charge on that. And it, the, what we're trying to do with improving these crops is in line with that. We are trying to produce more food. We have 9 billion people on the horizon with less input, more sustainably. I know that you don't connect sustainability with Genetic engineering. Go to our website, sbc.ucdavis.edu, biotechnology for sustainability. It's one of, it could be an enormously powerful force for sustainability. California could lead that. Instead, we're going to be stigmatizing this. And potentially, the case you just heard about the eggs is the case, is that that is sweeping across the country now. Maybe it's great. I'm not an, I think animals need to be treated properly. But if it does sweep, then this is going to stymie all those efforts to use this very powerful technology for what we all want, more food, safer food, less carbon in the air, better use of water, nutrients, and so on. You don't, you don't have to believe me on that because the products that are out there uh, don't seem to be in anybody's, nobody seems to be in favor of them. There is so much more to this. And while we're sitting here twiddling our thumbs, you know, the climate is changing. The temperature is rising. The population is growing. And we are tying the hands of scientists who could be making a major contribution to solving those problems. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Kent Bradford, director of the Seed Biotechnology Center at UC Davis, Jesus Arredondo, principal and founder of Advantage Government Consulting in Sacramento, Ken Cook, president of the Environmental Working Group, and Jessica Lundberg from Lundberg Family Farms. I'm Greg Dalton. A podcast of this and other Climate One programs are available in the iTunes store. And our thanks to our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and on the radio. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you.